name's Tamar Garg. I'm delighted to welcome you here. I direct the Institute of Advanced Studies. And this lecture tonight um, that Ashraf Jamal is going to give is part of an ongoing series of lectures and discussions and debates we've been having all through the year in the IS around the theme of lies. So we were lucky enough to be given a bit of money by the law firm Mishkan Durea to explore the theme of lies. Um, and they put those strings attached to the whole project that has given us the money, which is the best kind of philanthropy in the world, and let us do our own thing. But that has allowed us to invite people from all over the world to come and be here with us, and enabled us actually to invite Ashraf to come from South Africa um, to address the issue of lies in relation to aesthetic practices and art from his position um, as a critic and a writer and a historian working um, in South Africa. So I'll just tell you a little bit about him, and then I'm going to hand um, over to you. Um, I had written down that Ashraf currently lectures in film and media studies at Technis University of Technology, but he just announced to me that he's just resigned. So he's looking for a job. And <laughs> no, no, I'm sick of fallism. I'm sick of the sick of protest movement and collapse of academia internationally. Well, there you go. So he's not looking for a job, and if anybody's got any money to keep him writing and thinking, then they'll do us all a service. Because um, Ashraf, who I've known for some years now as a, a friend and interlocutor and somebody to dialogue with, is probably the most compulsive writer I have ever met. This is a person who has to write in order to live. He has to read, he has to write, and he has to look at art without which I think life is not imaginable um, for Ashraf, which is what has made him such an extraordinarily um, productive person. So in addition to having taught for eight years in a place that's really very unconventional in relation to the academy in South Africa, it's not one of those prestigious old universities that's had to transform or hasn't transformed or should have transformed and didn't have transformed in the wrong ways or whatever, it's really a place where he has been challenged to teach um, young people from environments and backgrounds which are absolutely not privileged at all, often a practice-based students thinking for the first time with conceptual categories and with the academy and the forms of writing um, which are not familiar to them. So he spent eight years uh, storming the barricades and fighting the system and working within that environment to really enable and empower uh, young people who haven't previously had that kind of access um, to, to intellectual property, and, um, and working a lot with filmmakers as well. Uh, but that, as he's, he'll describe to you, uh, having been at the coalface for eight years, he's decided that he needs to withdraw. And what he's um, going to withdraw to do is what he never gave up on, because through all this time of teaching and working, and he's taught in other universities as well, all around the world, he taught at the University of Cape Town, at Stellenbosch, at Natal, at Rhodes, he's taught in Malaysia, he's taught in Cyprus, and himself is a product of an education system which is um, very international. At the, at the same time, he has always written, and written, as I say, completely um, compulsively and compellingly. I've had the privilege of reading, as some of you will, his new book, and we are going to launch it on Friday night here in the IAS, so I hope some of you will come back and bring other people um, to engage in a much more of a dialogue that Ashraf and I will have about that book whereas tonight is really going to talk to us in relation to the theme um, of art and lies. But just to mention some of the publications that he's produced over the, year, over the years, there's The Predicaments of Culture in South Africa, he co-authored another book called Art in South Africa, The Future Present, 
who's a co-editor of Indian Ocean Studies, Social, Cultural and Political Perspectives. Um, he co-authored a book called 100 Good Ideas, celebrating 20 years of democracy. In addition, he's working on a number of projects now. He's just finished a book on neo-expressionism uh, in the context of South African liberal practices. Um, another book on the artist Robin Roder called The Geometry of Color. But he's also written a lot of fiction. He's written plays, he's written short stories, prize-winning um, uh, collection of fiction and short stories. So, as I say, um, writing is a way of life for Ashraf. Uh, he also is a wonderful lecturer, and we are looking forward to hearing your views, Ashraf, on Art and Lies. So, over to you. Okay, that's a Where's that remote? Okay, it's at the back. Um, firstly, thank you so much for being here. Um, before I start my paper, and as Tamara, thank you very much for those kind words. I write to be read. I enjoy speaking publicly, but I also find it extremely excruciating um, because it changes the nature of the writing and the condition of meaning itself. It's a different environment. But I hope what I've written here to try to make as clearly, auditorily as clearly as possible will work for you as an exercise in listening. Um, but before getting to the paper proper, I'd like to um, thank Catherine Stokes and Albert Branchard-Aguila, who helped me enormously to get here, and of course, Professor Tamar Garb, and of course, the Institute of Advanced Studies and the University College London. Um, the theme is not mine, it was given to me by Tamar, and I, I jumped at it um, with both hands, and, um, and I'm thrilled to actually tackle the issues. Um, because we live in an age of lies. We live in a world that's profoundly unscrupulous and dangerous and actually, frankly, terrifying. So how does one morally sustain oneself at this historical moment anywhere on, the, on this earth is highly debatable. Um, I will try to keep it, I've tried my best. You know, you read things, I hope you can stay within the 50 minute bracket. I hope it's shorter. If it does uh, overstep the mark, it'll be by about five minutes, I guess, because the rhythms change every time you reread something. So I'd like to start with a prelude, and then I move into five sections, and it'll be apparent as the, the, the PowerPoint moves. It's not a picture-driven um, lecture. There are pictures, but they are, they are dimensions and aspects of a think piece. Um, and there are substantial sections where no images appear at all. Um, but we'll begin with the series of images. So the prelude, um, I recall the phrase cryptic coloration from my school days in Yorkshire, conveyed to me by my art teacher, Mr. Waddington, the term refers to an organism's ability to blend into its surroundings. I think the coinage stems from Charles Darwin's masterwork on the origin of the species. If not, it is certainly Darwin who prompted the ongoing interest in the connection between survival, mimicry, and calculated obscurity. Human beings are no different to other animals and plants in this regard. We devote the bulk of our lives to disappearing acts. However, cryptic is a curious word to attach to this disposition, for it suggests something mysterious and elusive, and not an act of survival or one of damnation, for that matter, for that matter which is also what it means to disappear. It is surely startling, then. Um, is everyone settled? Can, can you hear? Okay, am um, I speaking slowly enough? I'm a very nervous person. Okay. Um, it is surely startling then to encounter a creature who refuses to do so, to disappear. 
Joseph Conrad's adult harlequin figure in Heart of Darkness springs to mind, but so does a rather strange-looking African aloe, which I recently encountered in an art gallery in Cape Town. A compelling facsimile in scale and structure, it was, however, painted a jarring and unearthly swimming pool blue. Attached to a stainless steel stem, bolted aloft to a fluorescent white wall, the blue plant seemed freakishly peculiar, at odds with the natural world which it both intimated and cancelled out. An element in an installation by Roman Smith which centered on mimicry, dissimulation, camouflage, and the impertinence thereof, this chlorinated blue aloe evoked an Africa sterile and antiseptic, for there was something unhealthily pallid in the artist's overall color palette. His anemic take on camouflage, gray polystyrene rockery, and then that acrylic swimming pool blue so achingly synthetically true. Starkly indifferent to popular fantasy, Rowan Smith's African safari summed up the bathos and the fakery of our lives. A term I encountered in Wired magazine in 2014 better suited Smith's exhibition. The term is plastiglomerate, which means the aggregation of starkly dissimilar yet integrally related synthetic and organic matter. Ours, after all, is a plastic world in which the artificial and real have irreconcilably merged. We even have a name for this world, the Anthropocene, in which humankind announces its default design to destroy itself and manifest this destruction through its art. This grotesquerie is chillingly in evidence in Rowan Smith's forms and materials. Beeswax and honeycomb meet acrylic resin and acrylic paint. Digital print and cotton fabric meets African mahogany. But it is not the estranging yet all too familiar mix of materials that mattered most, but the artist's desire to walk us through our psychic mess. For ours is no longer a world cryptically colored and built on natural selection, but a world which has morbidly shifted from acts of imposture to acts of aberration. Rowan Smith's show, titled Dead Center, is therefore an apt prelude to this conversation on art and lies. Part one. To lie in the past tense reads as lay or lane. According to the Oxford English Dictionary, it means to assume, quote, a horizontal position or a supporting surface. More intriguingly, its supine position supposes a thing, a state, quote, undisturbed or undiscussed. Not so for Virginia Woolf. In the waves, she asks, what is the thing that lies beneath the thing, beneath the semblance of the thing? What is the thing that lies beneath the semblance of the thing? It is a question we commonly ask. If it is a question we commonly ask, it is because we commonly suppose that meaning or truth is something hidden from view and difficult to access. Truth, we suppose, exists beneath the lie, and it is truth which we most hanker for and enshrine. Its remoteness, its rarity, its preciousness, we believe, best informs and defines us, all the more so in this post-religious and morally bankrupted moment 
in which we find ourselves today. For no one can fail to recognize in this era of post-truth that ours is a changeling world in which truth has been substituted through stealth. The identity crisis we are acutely experiencing, the crisis of identification, is however not as novel as it seems. Rather, it is a crisis of mind, of heart and soul, always latent, which today has merely assumed its monstrous and gaudy apex. The gagging reflux we experience in the face of untruth, duplicity, deceit, treachery, stems from an age-old belief in essences, the thing that lies beneath the semblance of the thing, a belief which, in hindsight, was destined always to be outed. For despite the continued yearning for some fundamental and inviolable truth, ours is a realm of veils in which truth or the desire for it remains eternally protracted. It is not the scarcity of truth that should concern us, but the ubiquity of lies. Yet still we gnash and groan in the face of lies when told that there are different kinds of truth, alternative facts. We protest, yearning for some inviolable essence which we insist resides beneath the surface of this post-essential and post-religious moment. However, if there is a justice to this persistence, it is not because we seek some pure truth, but because we seek a better if contaminated, lie. Inauthenticity is, not, inauthenticity is not something to be besmirched. The inauthentic defines who and what we are, especially those who traffic in the arts, whom Plato routed out and condemned as liars. The staple of fiction and art, lies are integral to the creation of imagined worlds. Lies are wages, ventures, leaps of faith, willed conditions. They are not intrinsically or essentially bad for us, However, because they are deceptive, they can also be treacherous. We know this well. Act one, scene one of Shakespeare's Macbeth sets the stage for this treachery. That it stems from the mouths of three witches and women, we are reminded again and again of the ciphers of treachery, as is the black man, should alert us to the fact that the lies the witches supposedly tell us are not lies at all, but veiled truths. Shot through fog and filthy air, an unclear and contaminated miasma in which fair is foul and foul is fair, the witches present us with this oracular insight, with their oracular insight, which their recipient, Macbeth, which their recipient, Macbeth, chooses to read to his own advantage. The moral of the drama is that we cannot presume to know in absolute truth the meaning of a statement. We can only infer, at our own peril, its true import. For what the witch's oracle reminds us of is that we can never fully disinter truth from falsity. This difficulty doesn't merely stem from the failure of morality or the collapse of our cognitive faculties. It stems from a far deeper problem which Friedrich Nietzsche scrupulously tackled in 1873. In his essay on truth and lies in a non-moral sense, Nietzsche reminded us that the art of dissimulation reaches its peak in man. Deception, flattering, lying, deluding, talking behind the back, putting up a false front, living in borrowed splendor, wearing a mask, hiding behind convention, playing a role for others and for oneself, in short, a continuous flattering around the solitary flame of vanity is so much the rule and the law among men that there is almost nothing which is less comprehensible than how an honest and pure drive for truth could have arisen amongst them. 
The barb is lethal, its expression chastening. But what we cannot ignore is Nietzsche's assertion that it is the pursuit of truth that is strangely improbable. Dissimulation, the culture and rule of lies, that is normative. The witches in Macbeth understood this founding condition. It is not only Macbeth's craven ambition which they ensnare, but his vanity. Nietzsche returns repeatedly to this pitiless, greedy, insatiable, and murderous, indifferent, and ignorant desire for the realm of lies. The liar, he says, is a person who uses the valid designations, the words, in order to make something which is unreal appear to be real. While as a strategy, lying is inevitable, it is nevertheless concerning. For what exercises Nietzsche most is the potentially damaging effect of the slate of hand, being harmed by means of fraud. Okay, being harmed. This is the extreme consequence of the age in which we live in. What is the nature of the harm, of the harm that we are experiencing right now? What troubles us, it says, is not deception itself, but rather the unpleasant, hated consequences of certain sorts of deception. And it is this incarnation of lies as something profoundly harmful and destructive in its fraudulence which deeply troubles our embattled minds, hearts, and souls. Brexit means Brexit is one obvious example of this absurdity and inanity. It's a tautology in many ways, rather like fair is foul, foul is fair, which is not a falsity, but a complexity wired into the linguistically driven cognitive faculty. Words are forked, meaning volatile. This is because we possess nothing but metaphors for things, metaphors which correspond in no way to the original entities, and concepts which are the ideational means through which we make sense of things, arise always from the equating of the unequal through metaphoric acts of transference. Macbeth imputes his triumphal fate while overlooking the dire consequences of this imputation. It is not that the witches deliberately seek to lead him astray. Rather, the act of strain intrinsic to the confection of meaning is tragically compounded by the usurper's overweening vanity and hunger for power. He will find the meaning which he chooses to find in the witch's oracle, for they are not deliberately lying, but speaking in a forked tongue, which Macbeth willfully misreads. In a metaphoric sense, the witches speak the truth, but not the truth Macbeth seeks. By placing himself center stage as the rightful ruler, which he is not, Macbeth, after nature, mistakenly reads the witch's oracle as the sum of, quote, the regulative and imperative world. This imperative, however, is only ever one of many, for words designate multiple outcomes. The very essence of a thing can only be understood as a complex of possibilities. What words provide is the appearance of meaning, not meaning in and for itself. For as Nietzsche reminds us, it is not true that the essence of things, it is not true that the essence of things appears in the empirical world. Truth, therefore, is mediated every turn in the secular realm. Truth cannot be satisfactorily regulative, which is why Nietzsche reminds us that it is not the fraudulence of meaning making which is the problem, but is damaging consequence when it is catastrophically abused. And we are, frankly, beyond that pale right now. Echoing Macbeth, the philosopher finds, 
further reminds us that man has an invincible inclination to allow himself to be deceived and is, as it were, enchanted with happiness when the rhapsodist tells him epic fables as if they were true, or when the actor in the theater acts more royally than any real king, so long as it is able to deceive without injuring the master deception, the intellect is free. But do we live in a world that is remotely not injuring at this point in time? I sincerely doubt this is in fact the case, because ours is a murderous time. Inescapable deception can be bountiful, but it can also be lethal. One would do well to keep this crux in mind as we venture further into the realm of lies, our natural but also our debased habitat. As for truth, if nature is persuasive, then it must remain mysterious, little more than an illusion which we have forgotten to be such. But of course, it is not the belated preoccupation with truth that exercises me, but the far more pervasive, necessary, and dangerous realm of lies which we cloak, with which we cloak our lives. More particularly, it is the operation of lies within a specific world, the world of contemporary South African art, which compels me more. How do lies work effectively in art? When does the lie become dangerous and damaging? In his Jerusalem Prize acceptance speech, an essay to which I have returned more persistently than any other, Jane Kutzir considers the difficulty of telling the truth. Penned in 1987, in the very heart of a cruelly divisive time in South Africa's history, Kutzir notes that, quote, there is too much truth for art to hold, truth by the bucketful, truth that overwhelms and swamps every act of the imagination. By truth here, the Nobel laureate is speaking of the crudity of life in South Africa, the naked force of its appeals, not only at the physical level, but at the moral level too. Its callousness and its brutalities, its hungers and its rages, its greed and its lies, which, in hindsight, have never been resolved. Remember, he wrote this in 1987. We're in 2018, and we're living all in the more exacerbated condition of this very sin, one that he has described. If this crudity persists, which it does, a crudity which makes it impossible to imagine my beleaguered country differently, is because we have been unable to or have refused to quit a world of pathological attachments and abstract forces of anger and violence, and subsequently remain unable to take up residence in a world where a living play of feelings and ideas is possible, a world where we truly have an occupation. Okay. Does that exist? anymore. Our very idea of the world and what it must become is defined by a pathological morality, a need both just and obsessive, which has made it impossible to shirk a constitutive abomination, namely racial inequality, poverty, the psychic horror of centuries of abuse. As a consequence, our art cannot be sustained through enabling appearances, a living play of feelings and ideas, and therefore find itself mired in nakedly cruel and violent forces. And yet, if we hold fast to Nietzsche's conclusion that truth is chimerical, then what are we to make of Kutzi's yearning to be rid of pathological attachments? Surely, if art is to, be, is to truly have an occupation, it cannot eschew the inescapability of an abusive and cruel world. Surely what matters is not art's capacity to overcome this horror, but its capacity to think and feel through it. This has been Kutzi's project all along. 
He does not seek some vainglorious and beneficent world. Rather, he seeks to engage with the very gravity of the world in which we exist, a world ground down by naked appeals, hunger, rage, greed, and lies, a world that remains intestate. This world, honed through pain, is not one which we must refuse to imagine, but which we must learn to imagine differently. In doing so, we must not only recognize the difficulty of expressing it truthfully, whether this is possible is disputable, rather, we must closely reconsider the unscrupulousness of the fictions we live by, the fictions of liberty, self-possession, and self-determination. Okay. Which, of course, are dominant fictions today, given the global scourge of identity politics, race fixation, and gender liberation, which are all necessary, but are also phantasmagorical. The greatest lie, of, um, the lie of greatest concern is the one in which we accept that we have been defrauded, a lie which champions salvation when there is none. In South Africa, no such parity, no such transparency and connectedness exists. Ours remains a society broken, mutilated and ugly, informed by the illusion of supremacy and the shackles of bondage, in which we have failed to speak each to each. Ubuntu a founding culture in which we are whom we are because of others, has long withered. It is a collective sentiment, a truth which has been vanquished and replaced by a pathological culture founded on hate, fear, confusion, greed, desperation, violence. But then, if Nietzsche is correct, then surely this world, sustained through lies, was never one which could truly, could truly be vaulted. Rather, it was always a world which had to be endured. In the waiting country, published in 1995, the crime novelist Mike Nichol reflects on the rawness of life in South Africa, the evils that were practiced here, the inevitability of dissimulation, how we lie to one another. We lie to accommodate, he says. We lie because we believe it does not matter. We lie because we think that in the face of so many years of misery, a lie that is for the good is not a lie at all. And we lie because we have no self-respect. We lie because we are victims. We lie because we cannot imagine ourselves in any other way. It is not only the instrumentality of lying which is the problem here, but the extent of the fraud perpetrated because of it, its psychic cost. For Kutzia, the root of the problem stems from the falsity of fraternity, the vain and essentially sentimental yearning that expresses itself in the reform movement, a movement disingenuous and corrupt in its yearning to have fraternity without paying for it. Liberalism has a lot to answer in this regard. But the problem is deeper still. For what concerns me is not the confection of equality, but the root problem which founds its impossibility. For what we are dealing with when seeking the right to, to a wrong, seeking to right a wrong is not so much truth's impossibility, but its metaphoricity. For truth, says Nietzsche, is an illusion both necessary and duplicitous. Truth comes in the way of the greater problem presented to us in and through the culture of lies. To better understand just how the South African art world operates, therefore, requires not merely the quest for a truth, but the greater quest to understand just how lies have operated, how they sustain us, and how, at their best, they can help us reconfigure our condition and position in this world. We need lies, therefore, that operate as enabling metaphors. An artist who compellingly engages with the duplicitousness of the South African experience is Ed Young. In his word works, 
One confronts the delusory nature of fraternity and the psychic discordance which racks the country's body politic. Black in Five Minutes is one of many ironic barbs directed at the canned notion of transformation and the ruse of some instantaneous shift. Young understands the desire for change, but far more critically, he asks us to reflect upon the conditions which make this change seemingly possible, South Africa's phantom democracy. Young's aim is not merely to spoof hope, but understand the yearning which triggers it, a yearning for a different world in a fundamentally indifferent time. Because of this precise, because of this precise moment in which we hunger for connectedness, we also find ourselves confronted with what Pankaj Mishra has irrefutably recognized as, quote, the widening abyss of race, class, and education. This abyss is not peculiar to South Africa. What Mishra addresses is a global age of anger, an age crude, barbarous, divisive, which no moral logic can countenance, and in which well-worn pairs of opposites, often corresponding to the bitter divisions in our societies, have once again been put to work, progressive versus reactionary, open versus closed, liberalism versus fascism, rational versus irrational. However, while this antithetical realm frantically assumes dominance, it also refuses any reconciliation. Indeed, says Mishra, our search for rational political explanations to the current disorder is doomed. This dark conclusion is chastening, for today one cannot rationally resolve an escalating conflict. Indeed, if the passing of categories, open, closed, truth, false, has become all the more difficult, this is because we no longer suppose it possible to make distinctions. Rather, ours is a miasmic world, foggy, filthy, which Franz Fanon and Achille Mbembe have termed a zone of indistinction, a zone in which it is difficult, if not impossible, to disinter being from non-being. Fanon and Mbembe's insights insight deserve greater attention. What concerns the Martinican psychoanalyst and Cameroonian philosopher is the notion that blackness, the black body and psyche, has been so thoroughly obliterated, so wholly denied its self-presence, that it cannot return itself to itself. Objectified, humiliated, rendered inexistent, it is a body, an agency, which even today remains at the margin of being. It is not surprising, therefore, that it is the clamor for being, for breath, for life, which has driven a humanocentric will for selfhood. This drive, this yearning, was agonistically in evident in a protest placard directed at Brett Bailey's Barbican show, Exhibit B in 2013, which read, I am somebody. A grievance pitted against an exhibit deemed exploitative, which in my view was woefully misdirected, it is a grievance which nevertheless remains cogent, if symptomatic, as an expression of an ongoing struggle for human dignity. My point, however, is not to champion this justifiable right. What interests me, rather, is the voided being, the inex inexistent limit, the abyssal horror which we choose to flee from, or like Macbeth, which we tragically misconstrue. For if we are inescapably caught up in lies, if deception is the very ground upon which we live, then surely the recovery of some solvent agency 
some beneficent model for a better life comes at quite another cost. One cannot simply replace absence with presence, nothingness with something substantive, and an existent body with some body. One must also reflect upon that which is worthwhile, which lies within the void. The ability to exploit the veil that clothes us, the mystery that subsists in an afflicted and recessive condition. To merely rename the black oppressed body positively, bequeath it a reason and agency which for centuries it was denied, is to merely invert a pathology, replace a lack with a, sleep, with a seeming clarity. In so doing, we foster a vision of black experience and black art as merely a reactive decree and thereby deny it its richer complexity. For surely the black body and experience and its artistic expression should also be allowed its incommensurability, its perversity. If for Mishra, reason is doomed and no longer a useful tool, if reason is on the verge of bankruptcy as a mechanism for mediation, then why should it now assume a dominant role in black expression? As Edmund Burke, the 18th century English theorist of the sublime and compatriot of sorts of Schiller, reminded us, the nature of man is intricate. The object of society are of the greatest possible complexity, and therefore no simple disposition or direction of power can be suitable either to man's nature or to the quality of his affairs. Reason as a mechanism in and through which to attain a human right is broken, which is precisely why we find ourselves caught up in an era of hyperbolic excess, hysteria, and along with it, amounting violence. It is because reason has been reduced to a bloodlessly instrumental mode of rationality, which does no more than calculate its own advantage, that we must now reconsider not only its uses, but its abuses. For as the Marxist cultural analyst Terry Eagleton resumes, nature has been drained of its inner vitality and reduced to so much dead matter for human manipulation. What holds sway over human lives is utility, for which nothing can be precious in itself. The art world, indeed the world at large, has fallen victim to the cynically energized and limited utility. Reactive rather than active, declamatory rather than invocatory, this disposition, while necessary, is also enfeebled, for it blunts and contains a given struggle in scare quotes. Divisive, oppositional, monomaniacal, and hysterical, it is a mechanism which cannot save us. Hovering as we do in fog and filthy air, it is, an understand, it is understandable that we might seek some clarity, but that clarity, as Burke and Eagleton rightly note, comes at the expense of complexity. If reason is doomed, if we find ourselves today in a realm in which distinctions are collapsing all about us, in a state increasingly liquid, fluid, this state, the state of our time, need not be lamentable. Truth, after all, was never the other of falsity. Ours has always been a culture informed in and through dissimulation. It is the ideal of truth, an imposition upon an inherently unscrupulous world, which is the strange attractor, a quality and a category which remains inherently remote, which is why I've chosen to emphasize the importance of lying as a generative rather than a degenerative agency. What makes Ed Young's works compelling is not that they speak truth to power, 
but that they implicate us in a founding hypocrisy. Also fucking African, displayed at Freeze, New York in 2016, is precisely that, a word work which challenges the fetishization of Africa as a continent, an idea, a principle. This the tone of the work is exasperated, exhausted, numbed, not only by hype, but by the banalization of the continent, which for the past 500 years has operated as Europe's inverted and perverted other. That there has been a concerted attempt to rewire this prevailing prejudicial perception has in no way stifled its prevalence. Instead, what we get is a disjunctive state in which a constituted pathology is transmogrified. And yet, and yet, if we concur with Kutsia's view, then it is those very pathological attachments which will prevail. For Kutsia, it is this very pathological attachment to a dark truth that cannot be vaulted, which makes South Africa as irresistible as it is unlovable. While I share Kutsia's morbid conviction, I have nevertheless also asked that we flip the prognosis and learn to love the aggrieved and brutalized body of a country and a continent and its people. For it is only through resistance and love, a resistance and a love which is not prescriptive, that we will begin to understand the complexity of the problem. Art's job, if it can be said to possess one, is not to solve a problem, but to inhabit it in an engaging way. And I think that Young does just this. He occupies a dilemma and makes it his vocation. In this regard, however, he also goes against the grain of resistance art culture, dominant in the 1970s and 1980s, muted in the 1990s, which has morbidly resurfaced, and not only in South Africa, this banality is global. For today, we find ourselves thoroughly caught up in Mishra's polarized and doomed logic, precisely because we mistakenly believe that we can think and paint ourselves out of a corner. Paradox, however, cannot be so easily overcome which is precisely why Young has, given, has chosen to operate inside a contradiction, and so doing, foreground the lies which willingly or unwillingly would choose to spin. I see black people, exhibited at the Johannesburg Art Fair in 2015, expresses an observation. One might assume the first person pronoun I to be the subjective perspective of a white male artist. This could be true, but it is also not. The statement does not read, I, Ed Young, a white South African born in Velcom in the free state, see black people. But because we know the artist to be white, male, and notorious, we tend to fix upon what would be, could be a supremacist and racist abstraction of others. The generic conflation, black people, is now not read as an objective citing of a cluster, but a derogatory diminishing of a corpus of singularities into a blurred group. And yet, Given the context for the exhibition of the statement, a forum whose very culture is exclusionary and predominantly frequented by a white middle-class elite, surely the citing is inaccurate. Surely what Young is telling us is that he does not see black people, that black people are markedly absent from a forum. The Johannesburg Art Fair, one of Africa's leading trading centers, and therefore that it is their absence which is all the more palpable. Um, 
Though some names can flatter, the name black was from the beginning a mechanism for objectification and degradation. As Shilimbembe notes in Critique of Black Reason, published in 2017. It drew its strength from its capacity to suffocate and strangle, to amputate and emasculate. The name was like death. To be black, he most starkly adds, is the prototype of a poisoned, burnt subject, a being whose life is made of ashes. Departing from this most defiled of categories, Mbembe explores how blackness, typically perceived as debased, threatening, and violent, could operate both as, quote, the clinical manifestation of a sickness of a political nature, as it was a practice of the transformation of symbols. For Mbembe, it is only in this double sense, as a category pathological and transfiguring, that we can begin to grasp the complexity of the being it frames and names. It is an approach which defies easy polarization and allows one to inhabit a realm that is indistinct, in which one is no longer captive to the rights of an oppressed body or glibly inspired, inspired by its messianic destiny. It is in relation to this approach that Lungiswa Kunta emerges as a particularly canny young artist, for she not only recognizes a history of pain and injustice, but seeks through a series of visceral and conceptual installations to foreground the complexity of the oppressed being. Clinical, exacting, daring in execution, Kunta's works point to the zone of indistinction, the constitutive void which defines black experience in South Africa. One work in particular, exhibited in 2018, stands out as an instance of this complexity. We see a metal bed frame with its coil starkly a glimmer, the frame tracked all about by a cold white light. Above the square of coil springs, the artist has fixed a clear sheet of perspex. This is the structure's transparent surface. It is only the frame we see, the idea of a bed shorn of comfort. For it is this lean sculptural work, spot for in this lean sculptural work, spotlit, stark, it is precisely rest, sleep, that is denied. In the place of a mattress, we find a thin bilious film of petrol. Greenly iridescent, it is beautiful and chilling. For what Lengiswa Kunta is telling us is that this is not a time of sleep, but one of violent discord. The title of Francisca Goya's painting, The Sleep of Reason Produces Monsters, ruthlessly echoes Lengiswa Kunta's skeletal stage, the staging of a time, our time, that is besieged. For if we cannot escape the monstrousness of our blasted lives, it is because we are ruinously inconsolable. The brilliance of Kunta's installation, the bed is accompanied by a video work in which we see the artist's calves and feet swaying backwards and forwards, clasped in makeshift sandals made of scrubbing brushes, the bristles replaced with matchsticks, lies in its latent force. Lungiswa Kunta is not showing us the consequence of violence, but its sublimation. Her focus is our psychic DNA. Nevertheless, the installation is incendiary. It speaks to a burning world, a being whose life is made of ashes, in which there is no privacy, no peace, in which the home is a battleground. At, at, as the matchstick points of the brushes sweep across blackened gravel, re reminiscent of a bed of coals, we imagine that all in an instant could be engulfed in flames. 
a sensation which all the more forcefully ignites itself within us as we see the shimmer of petrol and the delicate impress it has made on the perspex sheet. Here we return to my initial reflection of the lie as something shallow, undisturbed, and undiscussed, assuming a horizontal position on a supporting surface. But I'm also reminded of Kay Seladeka's superb novel, The Quiet Violence of Dreams, published in 2001, in which the rat state of the black imagination assumes its dark presence. For Dekker, like Kinter, well knew that reason, dispensed as an antidote to horror, is, only, is not only generic, but a venomous fake. We're not all God's children, Dekker writes. In here, God doesn't exist. I am the forgotten who lies rotting in a barrel of fermenting apples. God never heard my cries. I never saw the light or touched on something sacred in myself. We're not all mystics who can extract beauty from our pain. Some of us are just born with too much corruption to ever survive it. The inspiration for a group show jointly curated by Blank Projects and the Stevenson Gallery in 2016, The Quiet Violence of Dreams captured South Africa's damaged psyche. Today, we are very far away indeed from Ed Young's early optimistic work, a sculpture of Archbishop Desmond Tutu in flight, holding fast to a lurching candelabra. Made in 2010, it is a work, it is a sculpture to which I repeatedly returned with my daughters in tow. Now, in, high in hindsight, the words which accompanied the grinning airborne Desmond Tutu seem an arid mockery. Be patient, the declaration reads. We only have a few things to fix. Yeah. At the exhausted limit of reason, in the midst of an agonistic and inconsolable fact of abuse, disregard, debasement, Dekker, like Kuntan Young, create art that infects us with its ruinous difficulty. Dekker would kill himself in 2005, but not before bequeathing us an electrified body of work that defied the hypocrisy that still seeks to contain a nullified black experience. I don't care for people who want to prescribe what it means and doesn't mean to be African, Seladeka writes. People say things just for the hell of it, to hear their own voices blowing out vacuous breath. I know who I am. It is this vacuity which we find spoken all about a vacuity which shapes and informs so much talk of African art today. It is a vacuity that subsists in a dangerous and fraudulent lie, a lie which, no doubt, one will encounter on visiting Somerset House, wherein, as I speak, the premier exhibition of contemporary African art in the Northern Hemisphere, 154, is underway. At the root of the problem is perception, what we choose to see and why. Given that lies are built into perception, the problem is not that we lie, that is unavoidable, Rather, what should be alarming are the lies which come in the way of a deeper understanding. If Ed Young's provocation or Lingiswa's insinuation are compelling, it's because they appeal to this greater understanding. They understand and manipulate the illusory power of art, and so doing, tap into the structures of feeling, a structure of anger and dissent in which it subsists. Neither artist is reactive, the Young's art appears to be so. Rather, both actively engage with the difficulty of perception the one by challenging the complacent exploitation of entitlement, the other, more demandingly, by foregrounding a besieged psyche and body. As the art broker, Matthew Partridge, bluntly states, in South Africa, the art world is a white world trading in blacks. While convincing, 
It is a view that is also calculatedly offensive and disturbing. My point here is not to bemoan the state of affairs, let alone write it. The troublingly widespread perception that the global interest in contemporary art signals a second scramble is by the by. Another terribly unfortunate term that you must have come across, the big boom in African art being a second scramble for Africa. What interests me far more is the value of a calculated dissonance and an enabling lie. For just as I cannot stomach the exploitation of the black body and its expressions, neither can I wholly endorse the jingoistic assumption that it is an invariable force for good. Piety in the understanding of black experience must be routed out. As Steve Bunter Beaker noted in I Write What I Like, the first step is to make the black man come to himself to pump back life into his empty shell, to infuse him with pride and dignity, to remind him of his complicity in the crime of allowing himself to be misused and therefore letting evil reign supreme in the country of his birth. This is what we mean by an inward-looking process. This is the definition of black consciousness. The black man, therefore, is complicit in the engineering of his own dissolution and co-optation in an enterprise which fundamentally refuses him a greater probity. And if the art world has allowed this to happen, it is precisely because it has favored the iconic and spectacular at the expense of what Edinburgh termed the greater possible complexity. Tragically still perceived as a curiosity, the black being and its works have rarely been permitted to move beyond an assigned representational economy. There is, of course, an urgent move to override this tendency the decision by the Baltimore Museum of Arts to sell their Rauschenberg's Worrells and Kleins to buy works by women and blacks is a typical and rather sinister instance of this newfangled political correctness. Ironically, however, it is the overweening desire to do good and write an imbalance which further compromises an already compromised art world. After Nietzsche, it is this political correctness which has emerged as a symptom which has forgotten itself to be a dangerous illusion. We see this misstep in operation in curatorial projects and tertiary curricula everywhere in the world. The widely touted decolonizing project is a glaring instance of this misstep. As a, ration, as a, rational, as a rational, if reactive project, a project defined by a good reason, it fails to address the matter of human complexity. We see this misstep in operation in, in, a, in human complexity. The greater appeal expressed by Achille Mbembe, which has been troublingly disregarded and disabused today, is to engage in the project of a world that is coming, a world before us, one whose destination is universal, a world freed from the burden of race, from resentment, and from the desire for vengeance that all races and calls into being. Dismissed for being utopian, Mbembe's is a view which nevertheless connects rather than divides us. It is, in other words, a better and more engendering lie precisely because it holds fast to a beneficent world in a time which is fast becoming irredeemably balkanized. Art cannot construct solutions to our ills. It can only implicate us in the difficulty of addressing them. As Jeanette Winterson noted in 1996, the true artist is interested in the art object as an art process, the thing in being, the being of the thing, the struggle, the excitement, the energy that have found expression in a particular way. The true artist is after the problem. The false artist wants it solved by somebody else. While I do not support the distinction between the true artist and the false artist, claiming rather that we live, that we lie for better or for worse, 
I cannot shirk Winston's conclusion that prescriptive art is also unduly conscriptive. It asks us to complete its meaning, to be its foil. That this inclusive view has become increasingly commonplace, the view it democratically champion as art's extension and arbiter, reveals the degree to which populism has infected the art world, indeed the world at large. In this troubling regard, however, we should remember Biko's caution and be wary of being complicit in the crime of allowing ourselves to be so misused. This caution, qualified variously by Mbembe, Biko, and Winterson, is brilliantly heeded by Daniel Stompy Salibi, who, who to my mind exemplifies an art in which blackness as a trope for subjection or victimhood is exhausted and reconceptualized. In his works, part collage, part febrile mark-making, it is the being of a thing, the struggle, the excitement, the energy which compels us. Excuse me. The prevailing lie, mired in political correctness and thus after Winterson, a lie that generates a false art, is that this oblivion must perforce be overcome. Daniel Stompy Salibi refuses the stifling and crippling imperative. Rather, his is an art, closest in spirit to Kaysela Dekas' quiet violence of dreams, which has chosen to, in, in, to inhabit an enraging hopelessness. His is an art refined by oblivion, poised at this tipping point in the experience of being human. Celebes is not only the art of a black South African consciousness, but the art of an agonistic, panic-stricken, and fearful global consciousness, which, against duplicity, must forge a path, no matter how inarticulate and graspingly futile. My final moments. If truths are illusions which we have forgotten are illusions, metaphors that have, been, that have become worn out and have been drained of sensuous force, coins which have lost their embossing and are now considered as metal and no longer as coins, is because they have lost or mistaken their currency. This, however, has not stopped a failed currency from being minted anew. In South Africa, I've witnessed the counterfeit played out in the quest for free education, in which neither freedom nor education has been fundamentally addressed. But it is not only this, it is not this acutely complex matter with which I wish to conclude this conversation, but its antidote. For beyond this rhetoric for change, there exists an art which refuses dangerous and fraudulent fictions, an art which can help us to live better, if difficult, lives. While we cannot shirk the indisputable fact of a widening abyss of race, class, and education, while our intellectual industry has become increasingly polarized, what persists and cannot be suppressed, despite innumerable efforts to do so, is our capacity for some starkly austere critical wonder. In the midst of our flawed and aggrieved state, we have the ability to access our better selves. And it is, this particular, it is in this particular regard, finally, that I want to share with you the work of a remarkable young artist Alana Bluchnote. A master's graduate from the University of Witzwaterstrand in Johannesburg in 2018, I was an external examiner this year, Bluchnote introduced me to a room blackened but for one light projection which revealed a series of looped portraits. My first impression was that I was looking at fine pencil drawings or drawings scored with acute delicacy in some gray ink. Photographs were not what I thought I was seeing. 
This incorrect yet reasonable impression made sense when I learned that what Blochner was in fact doing was not taking photographs, but digitally morphing a group of photographs of men and women, respectively, and reconstructing them according to a, series, a received caste phenotype race. The images were taken from an apartheid prison archive, the subjects deemed threats to the state. Through a digital process, the artist had reconfigured the idea of objecthood and personhood. She was asking us to rethink how we see people, the ideological, political, cultural, faux scientific methods we use to appropriate others and consign them to a preordained and imposed set of categories. The reasoning behind it all was especially compelling, for what primarily interested Bluchnot was not the system of closed meanings which um, confined the subject as object according to gender and race, but the slippage that occurred in the attempt to do so. The categories proved to be aberrant. Inadvertently, they also announced the acategorical. This insight vitally counters, was proved vital counter to a culture which seeks to imprison and herd human beings. That Blochner chose the faces of purported criminals or perceived threats to the apartheid system as a focus and terrain in no way belied the fact that she was also addressing the darkly current reinvestment in the objectification of human beings according to race and gender. For it was not only the impertinence and obscenity which ungirds the naming and framing of people that troubled her, but the vexed impossibility of any strategy of containment. Blochner's endeavor then was a brilliant deconstruction of types, but also a deconstruction of the imagined essence mistakenly believed to subsist in types. For through an exploration of facial averaging, which a cluster of men and women were morphed to create a single image, we learned not only of the universality of faces, that we belong to one species, but far more importantly, that no face can truly contain its singularity, and that faces, the aggregation thereof resulted in two impossibilities, the impossibility of the singular and the impossibility of the universal. What one wonders is achieved in renouncing or suspending these absolutes. For Bluchnerd, I think, it opened up a more fluid comprehension of the viscosity rather than the density of being. That the artist is currently undergoing an alteration in gender, thereby challenging the imperative of polarity and the ruse of essences, has surely informed this astoundingly potent work. For as Catherine Smith, Lechner's former teacher and collaborator, has pointedly noted, the artist's innovation displayed, quote, an active perversion of a historically discriminatory and repressive technology and method, and in so doing, has invoked something both beautiful and unsettling that asserts a different political potential. Bluchnot reminds us then that the lie that is art, the lie that is perception, can also harbor great riches a different political potential. In foregoing certainty, and embracing the, infi the infinity that is difference, we arrive at the enabling lie which makes life and art conditions which we can survive. After all, a regulative and imperative world is one that kills, no matter how necessary the regulation and imperative may seem to be. Where in the world could the drive for truth have come from, Nietzsche asks, if not from the desire to imprison us within our fears, our confusions, and hate? For truth is, only, is not only a leap of faith, but an act of resentment. In the knowing, world, we in knowing the world, we divide it. In yearning for some definable and tangible truth, we mistakenly override its metaphoricity. And it is precisely this metaphoricity, this cryptic refusal to fix a meaning, which art at its best enshrines. When Virginia Woolf posed the question, like and like and like, 
But what is the thing that lies beneath the semblance of the thing? She well knew that the answer would prove impossible to express. And yet it is a question which the vainglorious, the curious, and the militant among us persist in asking. For me, however, it is a question that remains damnably perplexing. And if I have fallen utterly under the spell of Alana Bluchner's enigmatic images, it is because in me they have diffused the need for a final and futile answer. Thank you.